From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, you look in the mirror and a little voice in the back of your head says, I wish I was taller, I wish I was thinner, I wish my hair wasn't going gray. When was the last time that we looked at ourselves and simply admitted that in the eyes of God, we are enough? We'll talk about that with our guest today, Peggy Weber. Stay tuned. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Peggy Weber. She's an award-winning journalist and author who's been working at her craft for almost 40 years. She earned her master's in journalism from Marquette University in Wisconsin. Today, we're going to be discussing her recent book, Enough As You Are, Overcoming Self-Doubt and Appreciating the Gift of You. Peggy Weber, welcome to Things Not Seen. Why, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm so intrigued by the book, and in part I'm intrigued because, if I'm understanding correctly, the book really isn't written for me. The book is written with a specific audience in mind, and that audience is women, and in particular women in our culture who have gotten the message, either overtly or covertly through our culture, that somehow they are not enough. And so first of all, let me start out by asking you, have I read the book correctly in the sense that you have a very clear audience in mind? I think you're partially correct that obviously my stories hearken to what more women think. Obviously, being a woman and having that voice and a lot of my examples have to do with, you know, child rearing or whatever. But I also think that in certain chapters, smart enough, holy enough, impressive enough, I think men could take some good lessons from that because I was thinking about that often that I remember at one point a member of my family was, there's only a polite way to put it, is out of work. You know, they had been downsized. And it was so extraordinary that so many men, when they meet you, go, oh, hi, how are you doing? What do you do? You know, and it's sort of like, it's not so much that they judge you, but you have to sort of present, well, I'm the executive vice president of pea shelling at the XYZ company or something like that. Or they say, where do you live? What's your neighborhood like? Or the other one is, where did you go to school? And do they really mean it like, oh, I'm curious, you know, where did you go to school? Are you from around here or whatever? Or is it like, is it a top-tier school? How, how impressive are you? And I think those doubts could be gender for both. You know, I think that, you know, you may not think, you know, not worry about providing the snacks for soccer, you know, the soccer game and thinking, oh, well, the other mothers think it's healthy enough or cute enough or magnificent enough. But you might also wonder, Am I enough for it? And I think that's something that I think haunts all of us. Well, let's start with that very word that's right there prominent in your title. What do we mean when we're talking about this word enough? Like, why did you choose that word, and what are you calling us to in thinking about and drawing us to think about this word enough? Well, I was blessed to have a long career in Catholic journalism, um, both in Milwaukee and here in the Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts. And 
I retired because I was blessed to be bombarded with grandchildren. There's no other way to put it. We have seven grandchildren under the age of five right now. And uh, two were born on the exact same day, 42 minutes apart in two different states. And one more is on the way. So we just, you know, have our blessings coming and coming. And I was down in New Jersey visiting my daughter, and I was at a Good Friday service. And, of course, they're saying, the Lord died for you, the Lord gave up his life for you. And, you know, I'm listening to it, and then I'm looking around at all the holy people in church, and there's just recognizing myself a little seated out that said, did God even die for me? Like, you know, the Lord, I am not worthy, but I was really feeling, Lord, I am not worthy. And I, got, I kind of got the idea that if I ever died, I just wanted to, like, squeeze into heaven like I was in a New York subway car, just like, you know, scrunching with all the other good people and just kind of sneak my way in past the gate. And I know that image seems silly, and I know people, purists, might be like, that's not what heaven's like at all. But, you know, this is, this is the way I think. And I just thought, you know, there's so many times where as much as I know I'm loved by God and I know I'm his child, I don't feel like I'm quite enough. And then we went back to my daughter's house, and it happened to be my grandson Killian's first birthday. And it happened to be Good Friday, of course. And, you know, so there wasn't a lot of hoopla. But my daughter looked at me and said, do you think I'm doing enough for his first birthday? This was totally separate from the experience I just had in church. And I realized that as a young mother, she's thinking, should I have ponies, clowns, it's Good Friday? And here's this little kid just sucking down cheese pizza and stirring up his cake, totally unaware, happy as can be, but we impose things on ourselves. And from there, I just started thinking about all the enough questions we had. Am I holy enough? Am I smart enough? Am I good enough? And and it just sort of blossomed from there. What I always try and stress is it doesn't mean when I say you're good enough or enough as you are that you're just this big blob. It's just like, yeah, I'm fine. I don't care. It's more that you can have goals. You can want to improve. You can be a better person. But you also can't live your life always feeling less than. That You have to say to yourself every day, I am enough. Today's the day. I am who I am. And if I get 10 more dollars in my bank account or lose five more pounds, that's great. Good good health. Your blood pressure will go down or whatever. But for now, you have to just appreciate the basic concept of how loved you are as you are. There's so much there that I want to dig into. And first of all, I'm really struck by this image that you just gave us of kind of just shrugging down into the crowd and kind of anonymously being ushered into heaven along with all the good people, but not really wanting to stand out or be noticed. And I think that that speaks to a lot of the ways that people think about their lives. I remember when I was growing up, the one of the worst things in the world for me was when someone would call me out of a crowd and point me out. I just wanted to blend in and not really be be seen. And And first of all, when I'm talking about that, am I hearing the right kind of parallel? Am I hitting the right kind of note? Or is this anonymity of a different character than that? That's a really lovely question. And I have to say, as I'm listening to you, my personality is not such where that I always wanted to blend in. I didn't mind raising my hand or speaking out. Shy has never been one of the uh, adjectives used with me. But I am shy when it comes to feeling like I could, you know, with this whole publicity tour, my my daughter's like, you really have to start letting people know you wrote a book. You really have to promote yourself. And I think there's a difference between not being shy and not wanting to make a fuss over yourself or draw attention to yourself. So I think you're right. I think a lot of us just don't want to be like, hey, look at me. Aren't I great? Because we think that's like not being humble, but we're confusing that sometimes because and this is this is another story I use in the book, that when my daughter was 
probably only 20 months old, my youngest daughter, we got a photo of her from my husband's company, from the company picnic, where she's dancing in her little uh, Oshkosh Bagash bathing suit at the end of the day. And we, it was a long day because you have to stay there to win the raffle prize. So her hair is askew. She's been swimming. She has dirt on her shoes. She has ice cream on her face. But the photo taken of her is magnificent. She's this happy little girl dancing. And no one looks at that photo and says, oh, if only her hair were combed, or if only you had cleaned her face, or if only her thighs weren't so chubby, or if only her belly weren't sticking out. No one says that. Everyone says, my gosh, she's beautiful. What a cute picture. And she doesn't feel that way. She feels like I'm dancing to the music. And so then I asked that question in my book. When do we stop dancing in our bathing suits? When do we start listening to voices that tell us we're not enough? So it's sort of like we don't want to be called out and have focus on us because we don't want anyone to see that like we might be just a little different or a little quirky. So it's a complicated issue, but it's simple at the same time, if you, if you get my drift. I do, and there's pieces here that I want to sort of lay out and think through with you. And I, I want to get in a later segment to asking you about the kind of stories that we tell ourselves, and we're, we're heading in that direction. But you used a word a moment ago that I want to linger on, and that word is humility. And I think that a lot of times when we think about kind of what we're talking about in our culture, like, should I stand out? Should I raise my hand? We can sometimes think that humility means not being noticed, or humility means that simply, even if we have gifts to share, we just hide them under a bushel. And I want to linger with you for a moment and ask you, where do you think that this comes from, this notion, first of all, that no matter how neat the gift that we might have to bring to the moment might be, we feel like hiding it? Where does that impulse come from? I think the impulse comes from anybody who can be either critical or jealous or put you down for that unique gift of yours, and therefore the hurt makes you want to hide it. And I say this in the sense that I always tell my children, a really good person and a really good friend celebrates the success of others. So that if someone can do something fantastic, you just say, that's great. And once again, I'll draw from my book. There was a part where my son came home and said, mom, mom, he was in first grade. And he said, do you know that Andrew's mom sews his Halloween costumes? And he said it with sincerity, and he said, she's gonna be, he's going to be a lion this year. And he, he meant it just like, wow, I never knew that. Now you have to understand, I'm what you would call art-impaired. I like to say the only thing I can draw is a bath. And when I would give them Halloween costumes, often, it, several years, it was like whatever, the Batman pajamas with a pillowcase just taped or, or used with safety pins on the back. But I looked at him, and I didn't say, like, yeah, well, so what? You know, so, so what if she can sew? You know, instead I just said... That is great, and she has such amazing talents. But sometimes God gives people sewing moms, and sometimes God gives people reading moms. And I like to read to you, so that's one of the things I like to do. But isn't it wonderful that she can do something like that? And so when you can recognize that I have gifts and someone else has gifts, then that's proper humility. Whereas, you know, I, I honestly think there's too many people, no matter who comes out, like, you know, I'm doing this. Well, oh yeah, well, he's not so great. Or, you know, oh yeah, well, you know, did you know she did this? <laughs> it's like we, why can't we just be kind and celebrate? And that's part of what I think you're getting at. Well, and I want to make sure that I've heard you correctly. So I started out talking about one kind of humility, maybe let's call it a false or a misguided humility that wants to hide gifts and neat things under a bushel. 
And what I heard you say in your response was, there's a different way to think about humility, and that's almost, if you will, a way that like the Apostle Paul talked about. When Paul talked about the fact that the body of Christ has different gifts and different applications of those gifts, I can celebrate the mom that likes to sew without feeling diminished because I'm a mom or a dad that likes to read. Now, first of all, did I hear that parallel correctly? Perfectly. You heard it perfectly. And I did go off the tracks just a little because I know what you're saying is is that why do we as people, or why are we afraid to say we have a gift? Why are we afraid to be noticed or to stand out? And, yeah. and, I, and I do go back to that part where I do think we fear hurt, but I also think we live in a culture where, you know, it's safer and easier. Why do you wear the clothes that other people wear, you know, more, more toward the trend? Because you sort of want to blend in, you know? And it's only like someone like a fashionista or a, a Lady Gaga who wants to wear something outrageous to stand out. And then you think, well, that's not me. And then uh, sometimes uncharitably you think, well, they're just looking for attention. And maybe not. Maybe they're just expressing themselves. So I, I think that's where I, I think we have to rein in, you know, the, the proper attitude toward humility. St. Anthony of Padua is the one I talk about in Chapter 7, because every, every one of my chapters has a saintly story to match the lesson, and that one's impressive enough. And he says, a spirit of humility is sweeter than honey. And, you know, he wanted to be a martyr. and got sick in Africa, had to come home. He just did menial work. And then he had this gift for preaching, and they were like, come on, come on, Anthony, let's go out and talk. And he's like, no, no, that's not what I had in mind. And yet, he had to be coerced of sorts, you know, to, to do it. He ended up doing it beautifully, you know. And, and so I think that, you know, sometimes you just need to encourage others. It's not that hard to love each other, but it's hard to get everyone to feel loved. Oh, that's so well said. It's hard to get everyone to feel loved. And where do you think that that blockage comes from? That What is it that makes us, because love is the most wonderful thing in the world, what is it that would make us want to withhold love in those moments? Are we? Is it our fear or the fear of what might, of the unknown? What do you think it is? I often say that it's depending upon what voice you listen to and how, well, part of it, of course, would be family and how, you know, you're, you're raised and nurtured. But another would be just what voices you're listening to, like, you know, are you in style? Are you rising to, you know, just take a magazine cover, you know. You're going to lose 20 pounds in two weeks with a special soup diet. You're going to rid yourself of all headaches. You're going to exercise every day and be super fit. You're going to, you know, move your career. You're going to add cash to your house. You're going to drive a better car. Watch commercials. And it's just like, I think those are the things that move us toward not feeling like, we're enough, and therefore we identify that, well, if I'm not enough, I'm not loved. And there's this giant hunger for meaning in life and for who I am and what I am. And then when you do make that marvelous connection, whether whatever role you find yourself you should be doing or whatever person you find yourself you should be hanging out with or be married to or whatever, then you just sort of go, ah, and then you find a home. As much as we talk about love, my one of my professors at Marquette said, Man's greatest need is beyond love is to belong. And I think that's where, whether it's a parish or a church or a family, you want community and you want that sense of, here I can be myself. And that's where I write also that social media sort of invades your home. You know, I could be goofy Peggy Martin on Alderman Street in Springfield growing up and liking big band music and uh, history about World War II, and nobody knew that. Nobody made fun of me. I didn't have to go on 
Facebook and see that all my friends went to a party. I could just be who I was and my parents just loved me as I was. And I, I think that sometimes we're just too busy comparing ourselves and looking around and trying to keep up. And, oh, do you have a phone? No. What kind of phone do you have then? You know, it, it, it just it can spiral out of control. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Peggy Weber. She's an award-winning journalist and author, and we're talking about her recent book, Enough As You Are, Overcoming Self-Doubt and Appreciating the Gift of You. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Peggy Weber. She's an award-winning journalist and author, and we're talking about her recent book, Enough As You Are, Overcoming Self-Doubt and Appreciating the Gift of You. In the first segment, you gave an example about the freedom of a dancing child, where the child is not dancing to put on a show. The child is just dancing for the sheer enjoyment of dancing. And a lot of us lose that along the way. A lot of us, even if we're encouraged as children, we gain a kind of narrative of self-consciousness. We start to think about ourselves and want to hide our lights under bushels. And so I guess part of what I want to ask you in the beginning of this segment is, where is that point where our culture starts to push that other narrative on children? What are some of the ways that that narrative seeps in and begins to reshape the freedom of the child into the self-consciousness of the adult? Well, interestingly enough, it's definitely, I would have to say, advertising and media. And as I note later on in my book, and I don't want to give away the whole story of every book, of the whole book is no one buy it, but it is significant that this very same child who danced with great abandon came home in first grade and requested that the next day she take her lunch in a brown paper bag. And I was like, sure, but why? And in kindergarten, she had a Barney lunchbox. And Barney was that big purple dinosaur that sang. And so she loved it. Everyone in kindergarten thought it was cool. She shows up at first grade with the same lunchbox because guess what? She still likes Barney. Well, she sits down and a little girl next to her says, you still like Barney? He's for babies. Now, where that girl got the idea from her older sister, I have no idea. But then whatever it was, it made my daughter feel bad enough that she came home and thought, well, I'm not getting any of these theme lunchboxes anymore because it'll probably be the wrong one. Just put it in a paper bag and let's call it a day, which was smart in a way. But in another way, of course, as a protective mother, I wanted to go into this little girl and say, how dare you pick on her lunchbox? Of course, that wouldn't have been the best thing to do either. But it, it, it's that kind of voice that starts when you're young. And I, I don't think that girl was malicious. She was just parroting perhaps her own, maybe she liked Barney and her sister had made fun of it, you know, her older sister, I don't know. So I think that when you buy into advertising or you buy into the voices of other people who listen to their friends or their peers or TV or now it goes way beyond that, I think that's one of the ways that people, you know, lose that abandon to dance. 
And I think it's also just society that we have certain strictures that it's it's just sort of like we don't do that. And then sometimes you just have to say why, you know. So they think that I think that's part of it. There there are probably far many more reasons for that. I love the fact that you brought in advertising, and I kind of want to follow that thought for a moment. You mentioned in the first segment that every chapter sort of has a reflection that involves a saint, but there's one saint in particular that is woven through the entirety of the book, and that's St. Ignatius of Loyola. And one of the one of the gifts that St. Ignatius and his tradition, he was the founder of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, one of the gifts that that tradition gives to us is a gift of reflective self-examination. And it's a, it's a tool that in the Jesuit tradition is called the examine, E-X-A-M-E-N. And the examine invites us to look at ourselves imaginatively and to really kind of reflect upon the emotions that we're feeling and the points where we're kind of getting bound up and restricted in our freedom in Christ. What I really like about your bringing up advertising, and let me kind of try this on and and see what you think of it. Advertising in our culture almost acts like a false form of the examine. It gives us a false standard to measure ourselves by. Instead of the measurement of being a beloved creature, a beloved child of God, we're measured instead of, am I pretty enough? Am I tall enough? Am I, am I rejecting Barney enough, to use your, your example from the lunchbox? But I want to really begin to think about, you know, what, what is the value of bringing an alternate way of examining ourselves that is different from the cultural, secular way? What is the gift that St. Ignatius gives to us that made you want to put his work and his thought throughout most of your book? Well, I laugh because I'm, I'm you know, you talk about, uh, I, some people are like, oh, I love the Dominicans or the Franciscans, or uh, my book is, is a multi-layered uh, religious <laughs> appeal because St. Ignatius is at the end, but St. Francis de Sales, who said, be who you are and be that perfectly well, his quotes are at the start of each chapter. I also went to a Dominican college for undergraduate at Providence College, but I got my master's at Marquette, and through the experience of the, the good Jesuits and through Loyola Press. And my daughter, Carrie Weber, actually, Carrie Weber Lynch, uh, is an editor at America Magazine, and she works with the Jesuits, so I've had a lot of encounters with them. And my son, Matthew, got one of his masters at BC, so, you know, it's sort of like they, 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 they get to you. And I feel like the examine is something that everyone can do. You can call it whatever you want, fancy names, but to every night, not to be hard on yourself, but to take a reflective look. Like, what is, I, I, I get my Greek philosophers mixed up, but you might know which one said the unexamined life is not worth living. Was it Socrates? I believe so, yes. So I, I feel like every night you just say, what did I do today? And how could I do anything better tomorrow? And what were some of the joys? What were some of the sorrows? And then you just look at it. But the question is, what did I do today? How can I do better? And then the question is, what measuring stick are you using? This is what you're asking me. What's your North Star? What's your map? What's your GPS thing you're going to put in? Where are you headed? What is, what is your goal? Now, I'm old enough to know that my overall goal as a child growing up was taught, you are here on this earth to know, love, and serve God and be happy with him in the next. That was a Baltimore Catechism question I had to memorize in first grade and got a sticker on my forehead for knowing it. But it stayed with me in the sense that why am I here? You know, what is it at the end of life? And as I head toward the fourth quarter of life, I say to myself, what purpose am I 
here for? Is it to accumulate stuff? Is it to be in style? Is it to impress others? Or is it to be known for your love? You know, and St. Ignatius also said, take, Lord, receive all my liberty. Give me only your grace and love. That's enough for me. And is that enough for all of us, just God's grace and love? Or do we want more? Do we hunger for the approval of people to say, nice shoes? And I have to admit, I hunger for that sometimes. I want people to say, cool shoes. Or I want someone to say, that's a pretty sweater. But And, and I'm human, and that's something that I have to accept as well. But I, I do think that when you use a different standard, a different set of rules, a different way of life, and not to be like an angry counterculturist, oh, all the secular world is terrible, because I think you have to work in that world and embrace that world and get along with that world. And But that doesn't mean that you have to always say, okay, you guys over there tell me everything I'm supposed to be. And so you take your time at night or in the morning, you know, I'm a night person, and say, how am I doing? What can I do? There's a piece in there that I want to expand on because you you started to talk about the the kind of goal of all this is that we're able to more fully love, and the goal of all this is that we're able to share that love. And there's there's a point in your chapter about love called Loved Enough where you you talk about the challenge of love, and you write and you say, love requires commitment, something that isn't always easy or always present in a relationship. And it occurs to me as I'm talking to you that if we are coming from a place where we feel like our well is dry, like if we don't think that we ourselves have been loved enough and that maybe even our creator doesn't love us enough, and that gets us back to that kind of anonymous wanting to shuffle into heaven image that we had in the beginning of the conversation, if we're telling ourselves a story that says that we don't have it in the tank to share, then it's going to be a lot harder and the challenge is going to be a lot greater, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's funny. My mother, God bless her, would always say, look at some people and just go. And if she, if she meant it in the kindest way, she'd just say, the poor thing. And that was her way of saying, okay, we have to take this person in. We have to be kinder to this person. We have to make them feel loved. We have to invite them to Sunday dinner. We have to give them a ride to church. Not out of pity, but just in, in, in a recognition. And I once heard someone say, oh, my goodness, someone stopped by our house without calling. And I just laughed. I said, is that bad? Our house was like a, you know, a, a mini restaurant and hotel where people just stopped in, were fed by my mother, by food, by hospitality, and by a sense of welcome. And I think that if you don't have it in the tank yourself, seek it out somewhere else. Find it. Find someone to give it to you, whether you can find it by volunteering or you can just find it by joining a Bible group or a parish or getting into something. And if you have it, then give it. Write a note. You can, you can always tell when someone's sort of just not themselves or just hurting or aching, and just give them a drop of love. So I, I think if you don't feel it, then seek it out as best you can and take it. And then if you do see other people, and, and it's very hard to initiate that. I think most people wouldn't. So I think it's more the responsibility of people who right now are topped off or at least that tank's half full, to say, okay, I got enough gas to get us through this. Let's go. Let's go sit with that person that's sitting by themselves at the spaghetti supper at the parish. Or let's call up that person and say you want to go to a movie. Or just, if if you're not a big doer, then just drop them a note. Uh, I just spoke to someone who just got a diagnosis of ALS. What do you do? How are they going to feel, like, chipper and happy, you know? So I just sent them a note and just said, I can't imagine what you're going through. Hallmark doesn't make a card for this. 
but I just want to let you know, you know, and I just went on to to talk about it. Fortunately, I know he's a believer and talk about our faith and that people like us are all praying and trying to have his back and see him through it, you know? If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with Peggy Weber. She's an award-winning journalist and author, and we're talking about her recent book, Enough As You Are, Overcoming Self-Doubt and Appreciating the Gift of You. A moment ago, you talked about the importance of community, and you said that we all have this kind of innate desire for belongingness. In the 21st century, one of the most prevalent communities now, and it's multiple communities, is the communities that form around social media. And you engage with that in your chapter, Impressive Enough, and the notion of kind of how we are presenting ourselves in these social virtual spaces to others. I just want to take a couple minutes and kind of think with you about the good and the bad that social media offers us. Because I, I used to think that social media was somehow bolted on to the side of life and wasn't really central to life. But now, 20 years into the century, it's pretty clear that social media is here to stay and is becoming central to our economy, central to how we gather news, central to our elections. So how are we as Christians and people of faith to really begin to navigate and think about social media in a better way? That is a huge challenge. And if you come up with a quick answer, <laughs> people will love you because I've seen the best and the worst of social media. You know, when they talk about things going viral, so sometimes you'll, you'll see a kind act that's gone viral and everyone's like, that's amazing. Oh, that's great. Or you can donate funds or even with technology, you know, with Amber Alerts and stuff recently in our area, an Amber Alert helped find a little girl who had been kidnapped. I mean, there's so many good things about this instantaneous communication. But, of course, as you know, there are so many bad things. I said that sometimes when you go on Facebook, at times you can feel like you're getting the Christmas newsletter from the perfect family every day. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, they went to Florida. Oh, my gosh, look at them lined up. Their children are just amazing. We tried to take a picture with our seven grandchildren in our lap at Christmas, and it is hilarious. There's one time where little James Henry, who's just turned one, was getting a little fussy, so the mother gave him his, what he calls his gigi, you know, his little, you know, and we didn't mind having that in the picture, but his three-year-old sister did what we call a gigi grab and just snatched it out of his mouth, and then he's howling. She puts in her mouth, grinning. The other kids are watching. Nobody's looking at the camera. I mean, it's a hilarious photo, but it's certainly not the one you're going to put up in your Christmas card. And, and so you think, does anyone, how do, how do these other clothes, ever see them where they're all in the matching clothes are standing on the beach and they're perfect and no one's like crying and, and they're just like, who are these people? And what have they done with these children to make them all sit like that? And why can't my kids sit still for more than two seconds? So I think that the social media can make you feel like you're less than, but at the same time, it can also make you feel like you're part of something like, oh, I, you know, I've learned about this Bible lesson, or I've seen this inspirational quote, or someone has told me something. But there is a lot of one-upsmanship, as you probably can imagine, you know, just sort of like people trying to say how wonderful they are quietly, <laughs> or people who are, like, putting out stuff that you're just so pained by looking at, you're thinking, why are you putting this out on the web? So, I, I and, you know, that's my nature, you know, I, I think... I was raised by, my mother had me when she was much older, and so it was sort of like, you didn't air your laundry. <laughs> so, I, so consequently, I also think that social media can be embarrassing, honestly, for, for me to look at some of the stuff. So I wish I had an answer for how we can use it properly, but the only thing I can do is, my husband always says, 
Never put anything in an email or online that you wouldn't be ashamed of 10 years from now and that you wouldn't want to see forever. And I think if everyone paused at that, I think then that would definitely make it kinder. I'm just imagining how radically Twitter, for example, would change if that was the rule of thumb. I I really like that idea. And I think that since you've said that, I'm going to take your husband's advice and try and be a little better about that myself. I'm thinking a lot. Because it also can never be recalled. I mean, you can delete something, but people take screenshots of it. It's always out there. You'll never get back your unkind words or your immediate reaction. And I have to admit, there are times I've been tempted to do something, and then my wise and wonderful husband's voice comes to me, and I say, or sometimes I say, it's not worth it, because some people are what my mother also used to say, is spoiling for a fight. They just like the drama. They just like the the excitement and the commenting. And there are many people who type first and think later. Well, let me explore this a little bit more with you because you you talked about, and I love the image that you gave about the contrast in the difficulty that you had having all the children kind of look at the camera at the right moment versus the people who, who sort of post pictures that seem perfect and you wonder how did they manage that. I think a lot about my own relationship to social media and the dynamic that you're talking about because social media invites us and encourages us to put a false face forward, like everything is perfect, we're having a wonderful time, the kids are all well-behaved. What I've discovered in my own life, and maybe I'm, I'm in a minority on this, is that the more vulnerable that I've been, the more that I'm able to actually honestly say to people that I don't have it all together, the more that I've been able to sort of wear my worn places out in public, and particularly on social media, it's been very affirming to me. It's been, it's been a moment where I have felt a cloud of witnesses gather around me at those broken places and love me back to wholeness. And I'm, I'm thinking about the dynamic of the desire to present the perfect face and how that sort of robs us of something and the ability to show broken or worn places, and that really can be filling. So I'm thinking about that in terms of what you were saying earlier about both the positive and the negative of social media. What role does vulnerability play in enoughness? Oh, I think it plays a huge role. And one person asked me, well, what is, you know, even if you're a non-believer, what is it that you can do to create that sense of enough? And, you know, you can do simple things like making a list of qualities you like about yourself. But most especially, I think, laugh at yourself. Just have a sense of humor. And I think it's a lot of good humor is self-effacing. I think if you read through my book, you can see many of the stories that the jokes are at the expense of myself. And I, did, I don't think I, I didn't put in this one, but one time I decided I'm going to make a cake for Easter. Now, I bake very well, and I am known for you know being pretty good in the kitchen, but I am not a cake decorator, as I told you. I'm not artistic. But I thought, well, I'm a grandma now. I should have a lamb cake. So I buy the lamb mold cake thing, and I cook the first one. It doesn't even come out right. Throw it out. We get the second one going. And then I thought, well, how hard can this be? Just put frosting in some, you know, um, coconut on it, a couple of jelly beans fries, and there you have it. So I did it, and the whole family just looked at it. And I looked at it, and I said, does it look like a lamb? <laughs> Everyone looked at it and said, no, to be honest, it looks like Matt's dog duck, which was a rescue dog. It was like a little Australian terrier. And we just looked at it and laughed. I said, yeah, it does. And then, of course, my son, being who he is, took a picture of the lamb cake and then put a, you know, a meme where it was the picture of the dog and a picture of the, of the cake. 
and said, my mom made a cake and, uh, for Easter in honor of our dog, you know, and just, we just all laughed. And everyone knows how I am about this stuff. And, and it was really very funny. And all the relatives in Wisconsin that are, you know, my husband's from Wisconsin laughed at it and loved it. And it, it was a big hit. So I think that, and I didn't mind at all because I knew I didn't look like a lamb. And it was one of those things like, what was I thinking? Why did I think I could all of a sudden become a cake decorator? And why did I feel that need? It was sort of like, oh, that's what grandmas do. But, you know, I, I agree with you. When you laugh at yourself and share that with others, then I think recognizing that you have a sense of humor really, really helps. And then you could say, too, when you recognize you're vulnerable, when you reach out to people and say, I really need prayers. You know, we're going through a bad time for health concerns or whatever. I think that's when, you know, my God, why wouldn't you want more people praying for an intention? Put it out there. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Peggy Weber. She's an award-winning journalist and an author who has been working on her craft for almost 40 years. We're talking about her recent book, Enough As You Are, Overcoming Self-Doubt and Appreciating the Gift of You. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation of culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with Peggy Weber. She's an award-winning journalist and author, and we're talking about her recent book, Enough As You Are, Overcoming Self-Doubt and Appreciating the Gift of You. I have to say, probably my favorite chapter in your book, Enough As You Are, is the chapter on quiet. And it starts with a quote from St. Francis de Sales, and the quote is, Never be in a hurry. Do everything quietly and in a calm spirit. Do not lose your inner peace for anything whatsoever, even if your whole world seems upset. And I have to say, that quote just stopped me in my tracks. I had to put the book down because I realized how much I let the busyness and the noise of the world affect my inner peace. And am I the only one that that happens to, or does that happen to you too? Oh my goodness, when you read the quote to me, I feel like there should be a disclaimer, which I always tell everyone. Just because I understand what we should be doing, don't think that I do this all the time. As a matter of fact, as you know, I don't know if you have children, but when you do, they're your greatest uh, loves, and they're also, they also keep you humble. And so if I start to say something, they'll say, maybe you should read your book again. Come on, stop that. Don't stop that, you know, that voice of doubt or that voice of... Is, is this what, am I doing enough for Christmas? What, are these presents good enough? You know, something like that. So I think with quiet enough, that is probably my biggest challenge. Um, as I told you before, people don't call me shy. People also don't call me quiet. And I think that I am learning, especially as I get older, to embrace and love the quiet. Uh, I often don't even have music and the radio or anything on 
when I'm driving now because I like to think, I like to pray, and I just like to just be by myself. And it, it's something I would never have done when I was younger. So I think that I'm learning that. And then also the idea of having things to do. I think we think we're, we're important if we have a big things to do list and we're, we're busy. You know, I'm busy. I have a lot on my plate. Oh, that must mean that, you know, you have a, a life of meaning and significance as opposed to I'm sitting here knitting and thinking about stuff. Well, that doesn't sound impressive, does it? And it doesn't sound like a, a full life, but I tell you, it can be. It can be a, a delightful life to just sit in the quiet. I even find it when you're out on a date, you would think if you weren't talking to your date, that would be dreadful, right? It'd be a bad date. But after four, almost 40 years of marriage, my husband and I can sit in the car in what I call companionable silence and just enjoy the quiet with each other, be in our own thoughts until, you know, Waze tells us to turn somewhere. And and I think that quiet in our world, especially when it's like ding, ding, you know, the, the TV, not just the TVs now, your phones, your computers, everything around you that, you know, you, you, you need that probably more than ever. Well, and we live in a world that increasingly wants to rob us of those places of quiet or to tell us a story that says exactly as, as you've just illustrated, that somehow if we take those moments of retreat, self-care, Sabbath even, that somehow we are, we're not living up to our full potential. Like it, it, it really robs us of Sabbath, doesn't it, to lose that quiet? Yes, yes. And, and I'm old enough also to remember, we lived, I, lived in, I grew up in Massachusetts as well, and they had what were called the Blue Laws, which were holdovers from the Pilgrims where none of no stores were not open until I was probably like 10 or 12 were not open on Sundays in Massachusetts. So you couldn't go to too many places, you know, and so you had to make sure you had all your ingredients for the Sunday dinner. So the rhythm of a Sunday was church, go home. We had a big Sunday dinner, and as I told you, my mother invited um, a cast of characters, and then just sort of getting ready, quiet, and then get, getting ready for the rest of the work week. And it truly was a day of, if not rest, it was a day that it was markedly different, that you knew it was for God. And I know that, that, you know, when our own children were there, there were basketball games, soccer games. But ours even, our kids are old enough that they never ate into Sunday mornings. It was only Sunday afternoons. And now I have people telling me that, you know, there's, there are games all every hour of the day. And I think the church does have to accommodate by having other masses because people put sports often before God. And so you you can't force them to choose in the in the sense that you expect people who aren't quite fully catechized to say, oh, I'm going to skip my kid's soccer game and go to church, but make it easier for them to go at night or the night before. But I still think that we have to take a deep breath and just say, what are we running for? What are we running to? And if this were my last 24 hours, how would I spend it? I don't think I'd be running off to an airport to jump on a plane to go on a trip somewhere. I wouldn't want to be trying to get on the ride with all due respect to Disney World, you know, get on the coaster or something. I just want to sit and talk and reminisce. You know, T.S. Eliot writes the evening with the photograph album, you know, where you just sit and reminisce and remember and you're surrounded by people, if you're lucky enough, lots of people you love. There's another aspect of this enoughness that I want to explore in our last few minutes together. And it's this. I think that there are some in the wider Christian world who are very suspicious of the kind of message that you're trying to bring. To tell someone that where they are is enough is in their ears dangerous because a person might become complacent and might become very comfortable 
in a life that is not fully attuned or as attuned as it could be towards God and towards righteousness. And so if you tell someone that they're enough, they're not going to be striving for holiness every moment of the day. And I think that that concerns certain people very much. And so for those that may have this kind of overly scrupulous bone in their body where they want us always to be looking to find ways that we can improve and never to sit comfortably in just the the belovedness of where we are, how would you speak to that concern from what you're doing here in your book, Enough As You Are? You know, I, I recognize that concern and I appreciate it, but this book isn't, I'm okay, you're okay. It's not saying, hey, everyone's fine, there's no morals, you don't have to go to confession, you, uh, you don't worry about anything, you're enough just the way you are. It's, it's, it's that, if they d- deep dive into this book, they'll recognize that the book is saying that start from the premise that you always, always have to recognize you're a beloved child of God and take your identity from that. Your business card should read, Child of God, and feel that you are loved. And once you can absorb that feeling, that will be your anchor, your direct, that, the thing that holds you, that allows you to grow and become more. But some people who are at the, at the dismissive side of this are probably blessed to be past that. They already know they're loved, and they're always hungering for more from God, and they want to do it, and they want the majest, the greater. But there's a minister of loneliness set up in, in England. And then I just read actually on Google News today that one of the greatest concerns is that loneliness is on the increase amongst all, but most especially amongst young Americans. The youth suicide rate is up 56%. And those, those are the concerns that I have that people... Can't even. How could they be like saying, "I want to, you know, pray more, fast more, uh, attend more masses," when they can't even get past the fact that they even feel good about themselves, or that they don't feel that they are loved by anyone, never mind God? And so, I want them to recognize through the stories I tell that we all feel this way. But if you look at the saints who felt this way, look at you know Mother Teresa. Did she feel holy enough? God help us. She had those dark nights, but she kept going. And look at Andrew, Andre Bessette with Smart Enough. You know, the, the intellect is a great thing, but it's a multifaceted thing. And so that if you're not on the honor roll, you don't have to put down the people who are. I want a brain surgeon who knows what he's doing. I want, an, <laughs> want someone who's really sharp. But I also recognize that there are intelligences that are other gifts that can be developed. And so if you recognize being enough is a starting point, it's a, it's a way of addressing how you feel. Sadly, not that many people feel that way, that they feel that sense of love and satisfaction. Then you can go on to more. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with Peggy Weber. She's an award-winning journalist and author, and she's been honing her craft for over 40 years. We're, we're talking about her recent book, Enough As You Are, Overcoming Self-Doubt and Appreciating the Gift of You. I have to say, in what you just gave us in that answer a moment ago, it became clear to me in a way that hadn't before, this gift of being able to be content in your enoughness is directly connected to what Jesus does for us in the Gospels. Jesus meets us where we are, and even though he says, go and sin no more, that's after he's met us at our place of incompleteness, and he doesn't condemn our incompleteness. He loves us in our incompleteness and gives us something there that sustains us for the journey. My jaw is on the floor at the moment because 
I had never thought about how powerful it is as a way of kind of anchoring the gospel in someone's life to be able to look at them and say, right now, who you are is enough for God to love you completely. And first of all, do, am I hearing that correctly in what you just said? You are, what you just said is so articulate and so lovely. I'm sitting there going, wow, he is paraphrasing what I'm trying to say in such a finer way, and I, I compliment you on that. You're hearing it perfectly, that I want people to say, no, 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 no. You're loved now by God. Not when you, you know, go to confession, not when you attend more holy hours, not when you do more acts of charity, not when you are kinder. He loves you now. He wants you to be more. He wants you to, to, to grow in holiness and love. You are good enough now. And people don't feel that way. It, it's a, I think it's almost epidemic proportions. And I think, as you say, that part of it is because they're always comparing themselves to others. And how can you compare more? Because you're more aware of the world around you. My world growing up was so small. It was my neighborhood. And it was, you know, I, we, my mother didn't even have a license. She, we didn't drive. We walked to a corner grocery store. We walked up to, we literally lived across the street from our church. I walked to a library. I had like seven neighbors and then I went to school, but there wasn't this like over, you know, and, and I thought we had a small family because the people next door had eight children in their family. You know, it's just, you just roll with it. And I think today now it's just, ah, it's overwhelming. So I think what I'm trying to do is just say, take one of these, read this and call me in the morning. <laughs> As you have been bringing this book out into the world, what sort of reaction have you gotten from readers? I, I'm hoping that you've heard back and heard back positively, but I'd love to hear some of the stories about how this has been affecting people. You know, I, I said to uh, my children, I said, I am so happy because when you write a book, you know, there are the pressures that you will. You hope it will sell. And that's why I'm talking to you. I hope people will go on Amazon or go Barnes & Noble or to Loyola Press and order it. But I also want people, if, I said, if it just touches one person who says, this really means a lot to me, and it has helped me, then that'll be enough, ironically, to use that word. But, and I have heard, I got an email, I don't know how she even found it, from one woman in Maryland just wrote and said, I have to tell you, I found this book to be magnificent. I want to, I'm reading it again, and it just has helped me. And, I, I, and it, she, her reaction was just so fabulous. And then I heard from a the niece of my sister-in-law, who is no relation, who just said, this is amazing. This is touching my heart. You know, she's in her 50s. She's a young mom of sorts, you know, with kids in high school. And she said, I'm bringing it to church to share with others. We need this message. And to me, that's a success. You know, am I on the New York Times bestseller list? No. But am I touching some people's hearts and making them see that stories about saints, stories about myself, good quotes, and a little exercise at the end matter? Yes. I had a 73-year-old woman come to me and say, you know what, I'm doing your exercise, and it's been fun because I couldn't think of five nice things to write about myself, so I had to ask my husband. And I, we laughed. I said, how could you not think of five? I could give you 55 right now. But that's how she was perceiving herself at the moment, you know, with that almost, like, humility that comes from, like, oh, I don't want to think too much of myself. And so I just think that those are the, the, the joys that are coming for me from this book, and I, I just feel that it's going to do some good for some people, and I'm happy. So that puts in mind a quotation that comes near the end of your book, Enough As You Are, and it's a quotation from Pope Francis from his encyclical Gaudier et Exaltate on the call to holiness in today's world. And what he says there is he says, 
there are some testimonies that may prove helpful and inspiring, but that we are not meant to copy. And I'm thinking about that in terms of the the stories that you've just told. The Every person is interacting with your book in their own way. It's almost as if, to bring us back to the earlier part of the conversation, they're finding their own way to dance again. And the book is not saying, here's the way to dance and perfect this. Instead, the book is inviting people to look within themselves and see where they have been telling themselves a bad story or a, an, an ineffective story and to repair and repent of that bad story and learn a new story. It's a beautiful gift that you're giving to readers in this book, enough as you are. And I, I'm really pleased that people have been telling you how your words have been affecting them. That's so remarkable and magical for me. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I do appreciate how Pope Francis wants us each to seek our own path to holiness. And, you know, it, it's because you know, I think so many people think, well, you have to do it this way or that way. And I like the, the idea of it's a big tent, we're all under it, and we're all working our way toward God, but we can all work at it differently but delightfully. But I also appreciate that you're very careful to say that even though Pope Francis says that we're all to find our own path, this is not an anything-goes kind of anarchic approach. Instead, it's—I mean, there there are places where the stories that we tell ourselves or the way that we fill ourselves could take us down negative paths instead of positive paths. And if that's the case, I, I guess here as we're drawing the, the conversation to a close— I want to ask you a pair of questions. I want to ask you, first of all, you know, having written this book and having engaged in this own inner dialogue about enoughness, what is it that still frustrates you? And then after we've talked about that for a moment, I want to turn that question on its head and ask about what it is that is continuing to give you hope. But let's start with where the frustration points still are. Where, where are you still struggling with enoughness? Where is your uh, frustration at this moment with regard to your process with this book? Finding your path to holiness doesn't mean that, you, you know, you, you think, oh, if I stand out in the snow and spin three times, this is, you know, taking me to holiness. You know, I, I, I think what I'm trying to say is that within the umbrella of, of acceptable practices of the Church, you don't have, like, some people want to sit and say ten rosaries a day, but some people want to hand out sandwiches at the soup kitchen. You don't have to condemn one or the other. You can all find your way to God by doing good um, in different ways. Um but back to what frustrates me, I think that, and that is, goes with it, is like, we're all doing good. Why are we so harsh on each other? Why, when we're trying to bring about good in our world, isn't that our goal, to all move toward God and to become saints? And this is just among, I'm just, I'm not even going to talk about the unchurched. I'm talking about even within our Catholic Church. Why are we so harsh and critical of each other and feel so superior that you're not doing it right, you're not good enough, you don't know what you're talking about, you're this, you're that. And I'm not talking about obvious sin or you know heresy, I'm talking about just in general how harsh we can be to each other. And I think we have to try to recognize, you know, the old, what would Jesus do? And like you said, meet the sinner where they are and bring them along and not condemn to the point of such harshness and such meanness that we alienate the world. The Church has so many beautiful gifts and it does so much good in the world. And let, let's try and like bring that with us as we go along. And uh, so I think that, that that's where I get frustrated sometimes in the Church when, uh, even like I say, like, listen, this is folksy spirituality, this isn't the Summa. But then I laugh because I think, why do I have to try and justify that? Isn't there room in this Church for both 
my kind of message and the Summa? Of course, and there's going to be people I know who prefer the more heady theological treatises and those who say, yeah, just tell me a good story, Peggy, and have a meaning for it. And that's basically what I do. In terms of hopes, my hope is just that, that we can all come to see the beauty of our faith and the love of God every day. And I'll tell you, I recommend spend about a half hour or even 15 minutes every day with a child, and they will bring you toward the truth, but they also will bring you toward an innocence and a love that is so pure. And as when I say toward the truth, one time my granddaughter, Cordelia, climbed in my lap, and it was so snuggly, and she's petting my face, and she said, you know what, Grandma? And I said, what, Cordelia? She said, you're old. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I said, yeah, I am. She said, but you know what? It's good, because you're not dead yet, and I love you, so I'm really glad you're still here. <laughs> and I think that's the point of the hope, that I can hear the truth, I can speak the truth, I can spread a message of love and still be loved. That that gives us, I think, a wonderful place to bring this to a conclusion. Let me just simply say, I so enjoyed this book. I learned from it. There, As, as I said earlier, there were points where I, I literally had to put the book down because I was so arrested by what I had just read. It's a book full of wisdom, and it's a book that is an invitation to really consider in the best possible way, both where we are and what we could be if we could simply see ourselves the way that God sees us. And so, Peggy Weber, thank you, first of all, for writing this book, Enough As You Are, but also thank you for taking time to talk to us about it today. Well, David, I'll tell you, just your words just right now give me chills, and they make me very happy, and I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. It, it, it's, It's a real privilege to be on your show. We've been speaking today with Peggy Weber. She's an award-winning journalist and author. She's been working at her craft for almost 40 years. She's the author of the popular Spun from the Web column, and she has her degree in journalism from Marquette University. We've been talking today about her recent book, Enough As You Are, Overcoming Self-Doubt and Appreciating the Gift of You. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.